the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And, you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America, historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s, and it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home, and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem, both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then moreover, Growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon. And it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa, or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia, or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen uh, recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime, you know, there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay, so they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role, and uniquely, that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is, is 
in the places where we're working in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and Latin America, we're basically shining us a, a, a flashlight right on the issue. But a, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to all to all the vulnerable young women in the in the area, so that you know the, the brothel owners um, move away from from working with women against their will from from trafficking in young children. Is this casual, or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to, you know, kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to abscond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here. It would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or, organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you you hold them there, and you never let them leave, and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live, and it's a regular business practice. So it, it's not it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you in working with local authorities and spreading out in, in, throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80 percent? Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It It was a pretty amazing result. 
In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then to for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the, the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources, they're setting up new police units, they're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases, they're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems, the government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how, how it can work to increase the, 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 the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And then the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect, that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually, um, as people see the results, they, they, want, they want to put more energy into it. And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference in the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a, an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's, a, there's a book called Good News About Injustice that you can find you know, through, through the website or, or through a, um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against up against and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. And working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Nineteen young men traveled to the United States, some on tourist visas, others on student visas, and stay here for a protracted period of time, many of whom exceed their 90 days, and yet it seems to go entirely unnoticed. They set up camp and begin taking classes in commercial airline pilot training. 
but they're very specific in telling the instructor they're not interested in learning how to take the plane off the ground nor land the plane, just how to fly the plane once it gets in the air. On a single morning, one Tuesday back in 2001, they all board flights sitting in the first-class section of a number of major airliners in four strategic communities around the United States. They engage in conversation in Arabic, and yet no one seems to notice. And, of course, by 8 o'clock that morning on the East Coast, the first commercial airliner had been flown into the World Trade Center, and the world as we know it changed and changed drastically. It might be argued that in the days and weeks and months preceding September the 11th of 2001, that it should have been obvious, that we should have known that something was going on, because after all, so many of their activities were hidden in plain sight. That not only, I think, is a great description of the events that led up to the tragedy that we know now as 9-11, but then to the title of a new book that helps to explain in great detail from a news and historical slash biblical perspective what else has been hidden in plain sight before the church and that is the signpost of the coming of the antichrist joining me today in studio is the author of this new book hidden in plain sight mark davidson mark great to have you on the program Thank you for having me on your program, Greg. I guess it can be fairly reasonably argued that much of what led up to 9-11, for those that could have been paying attention, maybe arguably should have been paying attention, we just kind of seemed to ignore. We ignored it until it was too late. Is the same thing true post-9-11 from a prophetic standpoint of what's been going on in the world stage and in history, that a lot of these events unfolding in light of biblical prophecy is largely being ignored by the church? I believe so. Uh, I think it's because we're looking in the wrong places. We're looking for something to come out of Europe or Rome. And we look at the Middle East and we say, well, there's a bunch of chaos. There's a bunch of events going on. And we think perhaps that, uh, yeah, it, it may support prophecy, but there's nothing specific. And the specific things we may be looking for in Europe just aren't happening. And so we just see all these events before us. Take us back. Uh, many of us can recall back to a time in the late 1970s, for example, when there was a good percentage of Christians, many of whom were spurred on by the writings of people like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, that felt fairly well convinced, based on their interpretation of uh, Daniel 7 and 9, Ezekiel 38 and 9, that the, the hook, so to speak, would be put into the jaw of Gog and Magog and pulled down upon Israel, uh, to launch what would be the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And the interpretation at that time was, well, this clearly had to mean the Soviet Union. Well, as we know in history, the Soviet Union has uh, since come and gone and been yes. splintered apart to and fro. Um, much of what we thought would transpire surely by the mid-1980s, certainly by the end of the, the decade, if not the millennium, if not ushered in by the change to the new millennium, all of this has come and gone. Now some folks are even pointing to uh, this year, December of this year, that maybe some secret mm -hmm. is hidden within the Mayan calendar that will tell us when it all comes to a conclusion. What yes. has changed and, and what has perhaps been the... The failure of our understanding and application of Scripture and prophecy in specific, whether we're talking about Daniel or Ezekiel or even the book of Revelation, uh, that back then in the 1970s, we thought so sure we understood that now today, 30 years later, has been proven to be so wrong. Well, prior to the 1970s, for about 1,800 years, 
We've been going on the, mom- the momentum that the Antichrist was going to be coming out of a revived Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irenaeus and uh, um, Hippolytus, uh, a couple of the church fathers, uh, first mentioned this, that that uh, the lion with wings in Daniel 7 was ba- ancient Babylon and that the, the great terrible creature was Rome and that the iron legs in the statue was Rome. And the city so built on seven hills, Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, they also fail to mention that potentially the Antichrist could have come out of San Francisco because it's built on seven hills as well. As is Constantinople. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, 1,800 years of momentum that never really changed. And so now we see, we saw back in the 60s and 70s, the European community coming together. It had six members and then seven members. And then when Hal Lindsey's book came out, uh, I think we were just starting to uh, get into nine members. And then around, it was around 1980 or so, Greece joined, and we had ten. And so we thought, there's our ten toes, there's our ten horns coming out of the Roman, the old Roman Empire. And, uh, well, then by and by it became 15 and then 23. And I think now we're last count is about 27. What we're looking at today and the differentiation between what we had historically understood to either be the former Soviet Union or Rome has changed and changed drastically. Yes. Give us some of the insights in terms of your awakening to the events that began unfolding in 2001 that in fact have their history going back to the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries? Well, I had, like everybody else, saw 9-11 and uh, was just wondering what is going on. Um, Europe is basically, all you can hear there is crickets and, and Russia was losing its power and and uh, so I, I I sought the Lord in this. What's happening? And he caused me to run across some work by a gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson, who was sort of a starter, if you will, of, I believe, of the uh, Islamic Antichrist theory, that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim and that his empire is not Rome, but Islam. And he had had many experiences in the Middle East and and, uh, worked with Muslims and was familiar with Islamic writings and eschatology. And he was comparing Bible writings to to Islamic eschatology writings and saw a striking parallel, even with the false prophet between Islamic writings and Revelation in the Bible. So heretofore, where we had thought largely this would come out of some sort of a political power be it Moscow or Rome. Now yes. all of a sudden we find out, no, this isn't a great competitive political power, but rather a great competitive religious power. Yes. Elaborate. Yes. Two passages in the Bible that provided arguments for people that the uh, Antichrist was going to come from a Roman Empire that I realized had to be overcome. And I agreed with that because the the statue in uh, Daniel chapter 2 and the people who destroyed the temple toward the end of Daniel chapter 9 were both associated with the Antichrist and it had to be reconciled to this new theory and so in in chapter 2 what struck me was in chapter 2 verse 40 of Daniel it says that the empire of the iron legs must crush and pulverize the empires of the other metals Babylon, Persia Greece and In studying history, I realized that Rome had never done that. Rome never conquered Persia. Rome only briefly occupied Babylon. And as far as Greece is concerned, yes, it thoroughly conquered Greece, but Greek culture and language completely took over Rome. So Rome never pulverized or crushed any of them. All it managed to crush was a single small Judean province down in the southeast corner of its empire. And as far as the people of the ruler who will come in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. 
the we had always thought that the people were Romans because after all it was Roman soldiers that destroyed the temple, set it on fire. But if you look a little closer in in at, at the historical sources, you'll see that the soldiers themselves, though wearing Roman uniforms and under a Roman banner, were Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. The uh, historical sources tell us that when legions, especially in the eastern half of the empire, were based in a given province, they always recruited from the locals. And the the uh, four legions that attacked Jerusalem had all been based in Egypt or Syria or elsewhere. Uh, there's only one legion that may have had Europeans in it, and they would have been Bulgarians. But... Uh, by and large, it was Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at foursignpost.com. That's four, F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. And as you pointed out, Mark, post 9-11, you began taking a look at what was going on, not only in terms of biblical prophecy, but was un- what was unfolding in the headline news day by day. And as we began, I think, here in the West to get a better understanding of the Islamic worldview. This is not just a peaceful religion hijacked by a handful of extremists, as we were told by then President George Bush, but rather a conflicting worldview that is at every level at odds with biblical Christianity. Oh, sure, they will acknowledge Jesus of the Bible, but they see him simply as another prophet, yes. not as the only Son of God, by only through him one might receive salvation. So it is truly an entirely different gospel that they preach, but not only a different gospel that Islam preaches, but then, too, a very different God that they serve. Yes. Elaborate. Well, uh, further on in the book, after I get past these arguments, I I look at Islam itself. I I thought, well, what is so special about Islam? And so I decided to look at their god, Allah. And Allah apparently uh, comes from the words al-illah, which means the Lord or the God. And it means to anybody, you know, whatever your god is, and you say Allah, then that's who you're referring to. But Muhammad changed that. He says, no, Allah is someone specific. And it came from Hubal, the, an idol that was worshipped down there in Mecca. Uh, his tribe worshipped it. And he made it the God, the only God, and tossed out all the others. Um, let's see. Oh, the God Hubal, the idol Hubal, actually sounds phonetically quite a bit like the Hebrew Habal. Well, we have in our English Bibles Baal, and and Baal was the false god that most entangled Israel, and uh, Israel suffered the most punishment from God because of that particular false god, that um, I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some connection there, and it turns out that according to tradition, the idol Hubal came from Moab and was brought down by 
uh, trade routes and so forth, and ended up down there at Mecca. So interestingly enough, then, we see the historical timeline that, again, weaves Mm -hmm. us back into connections with false gods that Mm -hmm. we see demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But Mm -hmm. in this case, it is the leading false god. We we can cite many false world religions, but by far the most dominant world religion, by far the most dominant false world religion, Mm -hmm. whose teaching is, again, 100% contrarian to the teachings of Scripture, as we know from a uh, uh, Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, would be Islam. Yes. Uh, Of all the false gods, like you have Molech, which means the king, uh, but you have Baal or Habal, which means the Lord. And it is the only false god, the only worship of, of a false god that tries to replace God himself, uh, an idol that's called the Lord. It's like, oh, no, only our God is called the Lord. So Allah is the God or the Lord to whomever is speaking or saying that name. If you hear that from a Muslim and he says Allah, you know you can believe that that God of his is not your God. It is not Jehovah God. It is not the Father of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different God. But if an Arab speaker who, or an Arabic speaker who is not Muslim, say a Christian that lives in Yemen, and he talks about Allah, then you can probably be assured that it, that is your God he's speaking of. In fact, I've seen in Arabic Bibles, they refer to Allah regularly, our God, as Allah. Because in the original Arabic, it does mean that. The only reason we, we associate it with being the Islamic God is because 99% of all Arabic speakers are Muslim. All right. With that said, walk us through, if you would, and we don't want to give away the entire plot of the book, obviously, but walk us through then some of the connection that you've seen then through Ezekiel and Daniel in specific that begins to, to write the story that helps us better understand that we're not really talking about Rome here or even back in the day the old Soviet Empire, but rather more more accurately and given what's going on in the current uh, historical timeline of, of the spread of Islam, how it is spreading, the manner in which it's spreading, that we're actually talking about the Antichrist coming up out of Islam. Walk us through that. All right. Well, I started by exploring, I, I realized I had to go back and explore the entire Bible, particularly the prophetic books, and including Revelation. I was looking for those passages that would speak of the times before the tribulation or times before uh, those events that we knew were the Antichrist, like the little horn coming up out of the beast with the ten horns, or the little horn that comes out of the four horns of the goat in Daniel chapter 8. So I, I caught these passages, and in looking at them in detail, it it actually says, toward the end of each vision, that these visions are applicable to the end time. They're not ancient times. They haven't been fulfilled yet. Um, in Daniel chapter 8, the angel tells Daniel twice that this vision pertains to the end time, the time of breath, the time of the end. And in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are still alive when Christ Arrives. In fact, it even says, and they were allowed to live a little bit longer after Christ had arrived. So they're contemporaries of the end time. They're also contemporaries of each other. And then in looking through Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and realizing these events probably pertain to the end times and realizing that if the Antichrist was coming out of the Middle East in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we're talking about the nations in that area and, and what happens to them prior to the Antichrist. The seven seals of Revelation chapter 6 began to appear. 
The first four seals, which are the four horsemen, prior to the fifth seal, the fifth seal being the martyrs that died during the tribulation. The first four seals then could reasonably be considered to be prior to that, prior to the tribulation. And as it turns out, when you look at and you lay out all the pieces on the table of of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and the ram and the goat of Daniel chapter 8 and the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, that the four horsemen and the four beasts all come together to form the same four sets of events, that all three visions are talking about the same set of events, but from different perspectives. And that's the picture that gelled, that formed before my very eyes. Walk me through then, because you you commit some time inside the pages of Hidden in Plain Sight to some very specific members of this cast of characters, uh, one of whom is Iran. Yes. And of course, we know Iran is capturing a great deal of attention in the headlines these days. We also know that Iran, more so than most nations, though certainly not exclusively, has, has very forcefully set herself up against Israel. Uh, yes. Ahmadinejad uh, specifically has talked about the desire for the destruction of Israel. Now, while yes. that's talked about amongst a lot of countries, not in as public a fashion and an abashed fashion the way Iran has. What is Iran's potential role in all of this? Well, there are four sets of events that uh, pretty much fall out of these visions. And Iran will be the dominant player of the second signpost, the second set of events. The first set of events have already come and gone. And all we saw was things going on in the Middle East and didn't realize their significance. But that's over, and so now we are seeing the beginning stage of the second sign, the second signpost. And yes, Iran will dominate it. What are some of those events of the first signpost, just to put this in the time order sure. for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Well, we have the four, in the four beasts, we had the first beast, the lion with wings, and of the four horsemen, we had the rider on the white mm-hmm. horse. Those two symbols make up that first signpost. And what we are looking at is that those beasts represent modern nations of the Middle East, the modern inheritors of what we think of as the ancient empire. So what had been at one time, uh, for example, Babylon uh, is now Iraq. Iraq. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the rider on the white horse was received a crown. He received a Stephanos crown, not a diademe crown. He competed against others and won and became the leader of Iraq. And this rider on the white horse, he also kind of strutted around on his white horse, calling himself a hero. And that's what heroes do. They ride white horses. That's common in history as well as in the Bible. And in uh, then he was also uh, had a bow. And that bow is the capability to launch missiles, to launch you know, airborne projectiles, and uh, no mention is made of the arrows. Did he have arrows? Bible doesn't say. Doesn't mm-hmm. say he did. Doesn't say he didn't. Said he had a bow. He just said he had a bow. And the Greek word for bow is toxon. The Romans picked that up to mean poison, but toxon actually originally meant archery. And poisons today can be chemical or biological or radiological, i.e., WMD. Mm-hmm. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. With me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4, F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, The Signposts of the Coming of the Antichrist, Revealed. You have walked as Mark through two of the four signposts, and I don't want to give the whole plot away, as we say, because there's so much more to come. But as we wrap a bow on your entire analysis of what you have seen, not only in Scripture, but what you see happening in headline news, what's the big warning for the church today? Some would argue that, well, this is all very well fascinating. Nobody really knows for sure. And so in the meanwhile, let's just kind of go about our business. But I would suspect as uh, in all cases where we're, we're given scripture in advance from a prophetic standpoint, yes. uh, whether it's heralding the coming of Jesus Christ or other events, that there is a warning that is to be heeded by the church. What's the warning here? Well, the warning is that the next event is going to be rather um, horrendous, I guess. is I don't know how else to put it. Uh, we saw, I mean, the Bible talks about, I believe, this, this leader of a modern Babylon, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and then the, the uh, unnatural things that are done to the beast, to the lion with wings, where he's forced to stand and his heart was replaced, that's Iraq. It was democratized. You take a country that has anciently known nothing but despots and, and tyranny and try to turn it into a, a democracy. How unnatural. And then the next step is Iran and the, our, the struggle within the government. But the fruit of that argument, when, that, when that's resolved and the lower horn becomes the taller horn, then becomes the next event, part of the second signpost, the main part. And that is a war in the Middle East, a major war in the Middle East, where Iran will run out to the west, all the way to the Mediterranean, to the north and to the south and to the Arabian Peninsula, and occupy, invade and occupy. And they are told, the bear is told, to go from country to country to country to country. And Ahmadinejad has said that his country, Iran, its mission is to spread the Islamic revolution, mm -hmm. to go from country to country to country. The ram is told to go north, south, and west. The bear is told to consume much flesh, and the red horseman is given a sword to allow men to slay one another. And Iran then will be able to occupy and control all of the oil, feeds, oil fields within Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia, thereby potentially being able to shut off one quarter of the world's oil flow. And to make good on their promise to wipe Israel off the map? No, Israel will not be bothered or touched at this time. They may be, get pressured, but I do not believe at this time they are a target. So essentially then what we're talking about is Iran coming in and laying to waste the weaker, more vulnerable Islamic neighbors? Not so much laying to waste, causing their governments to change, forcing a different mode of rule. Some of this in response to the so-called uh, Arab Spring? No. Uh, actually, the Arab Spring pertains to signpost number three. Um, that's the, the Arab Spring is setting us up for signpost number three to happen. Um, what, what Iran is going to do is start a Shia revolution within 
all the various countries in the Middle East, east of Turkey and east of Syria and east of Egypt. So now, now the Shia are at war with the Sunni. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the dethroning of Saddam Hussein, bringing him to justice, forcing about a change in power, which heretofore had been largely a secular government. We're now seeing the drive toward a religiously dominated government, which I think is going to be true again in, in Egypt and Libya as well. Previously secular, now swinging toward a religious or, or Islamatized government. So where we would think we did a great thing in terms of turning the country toward democracy, democracy, what we've really done is we have we have removed what had been one of the natural enemies yes. of Iran that contained. to some degrees had contained Iran that now all of a sudden that one roadblock to Iran has been taken out of the equation. Yes. The United States is completely responsible um, for the first signpost, the raising of the lion. You know, there's been this question of, well, why don't we see the United States in prophecy? Why doesn't the Bible mention anything of the United States in prophecy? And here I believe we see a case where the United States is not mentioned, but the actions of the United States are displayed quite plainly. Mm It said the lion was forced to stand and its heart was replaced. Well, who did that forcing and who did that replacing? It was the United States. So we are effectively being used yes. to bring about fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, and I, I believe that when George Bush said he believed God told him to go into Iraq, I I believe it. Just perhaps for different reasons. For than different George, reasons than we thought. Understood. Yes. Walk us through briefly, if you would, Mark, the fourth and perhaps most critical signpost. Well, at the end of the third signpost, the four nations will have completely taken over the Middle East and formed this great confederacy. Mm -hmm. It's a four-nation confederacy, not an alliance, a confederacy. The Bible shows this political unity, if you will. They see themselves as effectively, what, standing up against uh, the infidel like the United States? No, it's against Shia Islam. Okay. Now, I don't know what form of government they'll finally take, but it's going to be Sunni you know, um, but they will rule from Libya to Pakistan, you know, from the borders of western borders of Egypt to the eastern borders of Iran. And it's going to be one great nation. But when that leader, that dynamic leader, the goat, the great horn of the goat dies and breaks and the four nations come out from it, the four nations will break from the great nation. Susa will be the near the hub of the where the four boundaries come together. Uh, Daniel said it would be the direction of the four winds. So would be the four nations. When that occurs, the fourth signpost begins. The Antichrist will arise out of one of those four nations. Just like in Daniel chapter 8 with the goat, the small horn arises out of one of those four horns. It's going to arise out of one of those four nations. And it says that this goat, this goat's horn, the little horn, grows in power to the south and to the east. And if you can imagine, and I show it in an illustration in the book, the four nations, basically northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast, for the power of the Antichrist to grow to the south and to the east pretty much means it has to start from the northwest quadrant. So that would be the Turkish, Syria, northwestern Iran area. And uh, he will arise as the ruler of that nation. There may be a lot of chaos. In fact, there may be one ruler after another. We won't know who it is. But when he reaches out to conquer the Egyptian nation and then the Arabian nation to unify them, I believe the Bible's telling us that he's the one. Now, his true nature as Antichrist won't be revealed yet. The Bible says it's not revealed until he actually is starting the, tri- in the tribulation, but he would be the, uh, the candidate. 
the one question that whenever the discussion of eschatology comes up, folks want to immediately go to, and maybe it's a good point to wrap up our conversation on, and that is, as we take a look at the timeline of all of this, we know that there's been much wrestling over Daniel's 70 weeks. Given where you see us in the timeline, that mm-hmm. we have completed one of the four and are on the cusp of the, of, of the opening of the second, mm-hmm. with two more to remain, uh, can you hazard a guess as to what kind of a timeline potentially we're talking about? Well, I uh, went to links in the book to uh, avoid that. Just that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and leave it but, to me to ask you that question. Yeah, but, but, I mean, if you were to ask yourself, how long does it t- would it take Iran to invade the Middle East? How long would it take four nations to come back and form a great nation and break up? And then one of the four pieces start to reunite the other four. All right, let how me long ask, would that take? Five, ten, twenty years? Let me answer the question for you, then. Mm-hmm. In the same period of time that we saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall... The cessation of the Soviet Empire, the breaking up of that, the coming together of the European Union, uh, the the beginning of the dismantling of the empires of, of people like Saddam Hussein, all of that has taken place, in some cases, barely a generation. Right. I believe so, we have maybe a generation. So the, the short answer is, look up. Because your salvation draweth nigh, while no man knows the day or the hour, we know assuredly that he will come. And that uh, certainly while we are given the mandate to occupy until he returns, uh, there's much that can be seen uh, where many of these stories are uh, concealed within Scripture. Uh, They are beginning to be revealed within the headline news. And I think that uh, Mark Davidson does an excellent job in kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. It is certainly a new twist on what we heretofore had always understood to be uh, the involvement of Rome as being the seat of power from which emanates the Antichrist. But when you begin to clearly understand the role of Islam in the world stage of these two major differing worldviews between Judeo-Christendom on one hand and Islam on the other. Then all of a sudden, the pieces of the puzzle of Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation all begin to come together. It's a fascinating look at what heretofore has been considered to be Hidden in Plain Sight. That, by the way, the title of the new book. And while published by Zulon Press, you can get it through Amazon.com. Also available through Mark Davidson's website at 4signposts. That's F-O-U-R, 4signposts.com. I know we've just kind of scratched the surface today, Mark, but we appreciate you dropping by for a visit. And I think we all have a lot more homework to do with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and your book right in the middle. Thanks again for a great job. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. A look at Hidden in Plain Sight. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three stars.
Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.